Good morning. Great to see you on this uh, spectacular holiday weekend. Uh, perhaps I should start with an introduction. Uh, my name is Mike, and I am on staff at this church. Uh, <clears throat> those of you who don't get the humor, I was out uh, two weeks on um, helping to lead this uh, pilgrimage that we took to Israel. We had uh, 40 four folks from the church that were on that. And then um, uh, last weekend, I was officiating at a wedding for my niece. I did the wedding for my sister 26 years ago. It was the first wedding that I did, and now I am officially old enough to be doing a second generation of weddings. So go figure. Anyway, my niece is a physician's assistant uh, down in Houston, and so the family, big family get together for this wedding. Um, I heard great things about uh, the services led by Garth and Jamie and uh, Sky. And um, when you find out that I'm going to speak on politics, you might wish that I had stayed away longer. But uh, humor me for just a minute. As some of you may remember, four years ago, and indeed four years before that, uh, during the summers before presidential elections, uh, I have taken uh, a few weeks in the midst of all the hype and uh, steep rhetoric that is going on out there and tried to uh, help frame how we are to think about politics. Uh, Augustine famously said that the Christians live as citizens of two kingdoms, the city of God and the city of man. How do we navigate the intersection of those two? How do we make sense of what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Christ? How are we to live? How are we to vote? How are we to think about these things? These are not partisan messages. I'm trying to, to think and operate and talk at a level below that, at what philosophers would refer to as first things or the most basic uh, principles. And it's worth noting right here at the beginning that these are not um, easy things to figure out. It's not easy for us to know how to do this. And it never has been. On this uh, recent trip to Israel, we not only were sort of confronted by the, by the political and religious stress points of the Middle East. Right? I mean, if you're going to go to Bethlehem to visit the, the site where we believe that Jesus was born, you have to cross uh, through the checkpoints. You have to go through a military checkpoint. You're going into the West Bank, and so you go past the wall, and, and you are forced to see what is going on. If, if you go to church in the Middle East, uh, you have no option but to suddenly wake up and say, well, wait, everybody, just about everybody here are Arab believers. And, uh, and to to, to be reminded that uh, their situation is difficult and indeed many of them are leaving and some would suggest that we're going to have a holy land without any Christians, not many Christians. And so you see those political stress points, religious stress points. Uh, we went to the Dome on the Rock, the third most sacred Muslim site. It's built over the Temple Mount. You see the stress points between the Jews and the Muslims. Uh, so you see what's going on today. But we were also reminded of what is go, has been going on for 2,000 years. We, um, we went to Caiaphas's house. And Caiaphas was the high priest at the time that Jesus was arrested and brought uh, before trial. And there's a dungeon in the basement of Caiaphas's estate, and it's believed that Jesus probably spent some time during that night in this 
dungeon. And, and we went to Caesarea where the Apostle Paul was kept as a prisoner for three years. And we saw the spot where he likely uh, stood before Herod the Great and Felix to, to preach the gospel and uh, to appeal to Caesar for his freedom. You are reminded when you see these sites that, that they were living in times of great injustice. And it was complicated back then even as it is now. It's never been easy to figure these things out, but I think occasionally it's profitable for us to step back and to try and think through what it means to be a citizen of two cities. So, um, next week I want us to, to look at Christ's command to love our enemies and to think about what it looks like to be... Um, engaged in civility in a culture that is increasingly forgetting what that looks like. And then the following week, I want us to think about power. Uh, we have more of it than we realize, and power tends to be pretty radioactive. It tends to, make, uh, it tends to corrupt people. Jesus had ultimate power. It didn't corrupt him. How are we to think? How are we to handle the power that we have? Today, as we prepare to come to this communion table um, I want to make six sort of basic observations, six first things, and uh, then we will come to the communion table together. Six provocative political observations. Number one, Jesus is neither a Democrat nor a Republican. I realize that this is news for some of you who are quite convinced that he has pulled a straight party ticket for years. In fact, you're quite convinced that Jesus has voted just like you have in all the last elections. Um, I'm familiar with the arguments on both sides of the political spectrum. Those who are uh, on the left are going to say Jesus is a good Chicago Democrat. He is a liberal. After all, look at how much he has to say about the poor, about the oppressed, about the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. Uh, this is the direction that Jesus always moves, to the least and to the lost and to the last. And so clearly uh, Jesus would vote Democratic. Uh, and the verses that you might turn to include Psalm 72, where uh, the psalmist is praying for a king who will be just, who will judge the people in righteousness and deliver the needy and take pity on the weak. Or Amos 5, where God, speaking through the, uh, through the prophet Amos, goes on record as saying, I'm not interested in the worship of people who will levy a straw tax on the poor while living in stone mansions. Uh, sometimes the passage in Luke in which Jesus says, those to whom much has been given, much is expected, is used to sort of uh, justify a graduated income tax. All these things get pulled together, and there are people that say, clearly Christ was on the left side of the political equation. There's another group of people who say, no, uh, you are looking at the wrong moral issues. And we need to, we need to see that, uh, that if you are going to care, as you should, about abortion and euthanasia and traditional values, that, that you have to be on the right. You have to be pulling a Republican uh, line. And there are verses that are used to, to endorse and justify all of these positions but, but the, the, the conversation eventually says, look, there's no doubt we should be caring for the poor. There's no doubt that more needs to be done for those that are broken and hurting. But the question is, how? 
And government is not a very efficient means by which to do this. And it tends to create cycles of, of dependency. And it, then it creates poverty. And it makes things worse. And uh, so, so we have to look at the things that are clear. And these other moral issues are clear. And so we need to move in that direction. Obviously, as you know, both of these parties have... Um, sort of fringe, almost lunatic fringe movements within them, neither group would be very satisfied with the way I've characterized their particular platform. I simply want to say um, we live in a world of sound bites. We live in a world where everybody tries to make things absolutely black and white, and it's just not that simple. So my first point, Jesus is neither a Democrat nor a Republican. Number two, this, the United States is not a Christian nation. Okay? The United States is a special country. It is a unique nation. Some would argue for a principle called American exceptionalism. And I am sympathetic to some of the arguments that get made on, on that front. Uh, it's not to suggest that the United States is perfect. It is far, far from perfect. But there are ideals uh, that were behind the formation of the country. There was a, a Judeo-Christian worldview that framed the way our founding fathers set up our government that make the United States unique in many ways and special. However, it's not particularly helpful nor is it particularly accurate to say that the United States is a Christian nation. Now, I realize this is uh, complicated and polarizing stuff, and I'm quite confident that my email box is already full from the last three services. Uh, and I also want to say I am, I am aware of the arguments that can be made on behalf of those that say we are a Christian country. Right? People will say, look, hey, when this country was formed, the first the first settlers from Europe that came over here, the pilgrims and the Puritans and others, they came over here seeking religious freedom. And they established communities of faith where, where they were trying to hold all this together as, as outposts, as missionaries in this new land. And, and our, our founding fathers, while not all of them were Christian, most of them were. Most of them were, were seminary trained. Many of them were pastors. And, and uh, well, America has had these periods of revival, these great awakenings that make it different from, from Europe. And, and then there's a number of very specific things that get pointed to, such as the, the Supreme Court, which <clears throat> in the news a little bit this week, and the first session of the Supreme Court. Right, the very opening session of the Supreme Court years ago was a four-hour communion service. And, and, and numerous times there would be gatherings of, of our leaders and legislators who would gather in, in somewhere in, on, in the halls of power and they would, they would appeal to God in the name of Jesus Christ on behalf of this country. There are arguments that can be made down this pathway. However... It's worth reminding ourselves that there were actually people here before uh, the first European settlers began to colonize this country. And uh, our response to the people that were here was uh, not uh, particularly Christ-like. 
And additionally, the initial experiments in, in sort of commingling church and state, which were in place in New England and Jamestown and other places, those experiments didn't work for very long. And when our country was founded, it was founded by people who made a clear distinction between church and state. There were numerous religious tests on, in, in the states for governors and legislators, statements of orthodox Christian belief that you had to sign off on in order to be elected. But when our country was founded, when we declared our independence, none of those tests were put in place. And there was, we were not going to have a state church like the German, the Lutherans for Germany, or the Church of England for Great Britain, or the, the Reformed for the Dutch. This was not going to be in place. And additionally, I would simply point out that even if we could make the case that this had been a Christian nation, that's not the, that's not the country we live in today. This is a pluralistic culture. And, and we're not going to be able to become Christian by appeals to history, nor are we going to be able to become a Christian nation simply through legislation. Right? We, can't, we can't politically mandate the change in someone's heart that needs to take place when they come to faith in Christ. So we live in a different world. It's not a Christian country. Number three, government is a good thing. I'm just going to pause here to acknowledge that I'm on quite a roll, and some of you I know are already drafting that email. Government is a good thing. God established and ordered uh, and ordained civil authority, and he told us to pray for our leaders and told us to obey our leaders. He did this because Everything matters to God, and he knew that, that some form of government is always better than the alternative. Anarchy is always the worst option. And so we have the Apostle Paul saying that government has been established by God, ordained by God, to preserve order and promote justice. And Paul writes and says that to disobey the government is not simply a bad idea. He equates it with sin, saying that the authority of the government ultimately is authority that comes from God. Now, are there ever occasions where we should disobey the government? Yes. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 4, we have an early example of that. Right? Acts chapter 2, the church is born, Pentecost, the Spirit of God falls on the people gathered in the upper room. They spill out into the streets preaching the gospel. Thousands come to faith. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John heal a man. Many see this. The number of people that are now responding and putting their faith in Christ is growing by the thousands. And the Sanhedrin, the, the, the council of leaders of the Jews, gets very nervous by what's going on. And so they have Peter and John arrested and put in jail and they threaten them and they say you cannot you cannot keep talking about Jesus this is not going to happen and in Acts chapter 4 verse 18 it, we read then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus but Peter and John replied judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard so they go on record 
as saying, we are going to disobey, mindful of the likely consequences. And they will face this. They will lose their lives for proclaiming the gospel. And we have examples of other, of other very thoughtful, significant leaders, such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who will lose his life saying, no, you've got, we've got to stand up against uh, Hitler and the Nazis. And, and you'll have examples of others who will, who will suffer greatly for going against the government. Alexander Solzhenitsyn and uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. fighting Jim Crow laws and getting beaten for that. There are times when we need to disobey the government. But let's acknowledge that Paul is, is in prison. He's arrested for preaching the gospel. He's living in a culture where the leader claims to be God. And additionally, he's living in a time where the Jews were paying unbelievably high taxes. They were occupied people by the Romans. They were, they were just absolutely being bled dry. And from that position, Paul writes and says, right, we need to recognize government as something God has ordained as a good thing, and we need to honor and obey our government leaders. Number four. I'd like to argue that the most patriotic thing that you can do is to share your faith. I would, like to, I would like to highlight the fact that the kind of government that we want, the kind of freedoms we want to enjoy, is only possible if the church is doing her job. There's sort of three things here to recognize. First of all, God ordained both the church and the state. Martin Luther called them the right and left hands of God. The left hand, the state, he said, was to preserve uh, order and to promote justice. The right hand, the church, was, of course, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and, and to serve, right? We are to, we are to preach, we're to proclaim the good news, and we're to engage in good works. And it's worth noting historically that whenever the church tries to take over the role of the state, things get very ugly. And whenever the state tries to take over the role of the church, it doesn't work. Right? Because all they're going to end up doing is taking all the freedoms of the people. Because they, they cannot legislate virtue. They can only control behavior. Right? The, the kind of government that we want is only possible if people will police their own behavior. If people are trying to be virtuous. If people want to be good in part because they know they're going to stand before God and offer an account of their life. So it doesn't, it's not that the police are looking over our shoulders. It's not that there are laws against this. It's that this is what I'm trying to do and be. I'm trying to love and serve people. I'm trying to put the needs of others ahead of my own. I'm interested in the common good, not just what's good for me. The only, the only way this works, right, the only way the kind of freedoms that we want are able to be maintained is if there is a virtual or a virtuous populace. And so we need the church to be strong and we need the church to be growing. And it's a very patriotic thing to share your faith. And by the way, our founders knew this. John Adams wrote, Our Constitution is made for a religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the governance of any other. George Washington, in his farewell address to the nation, as he was stepping down as president, said, Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. 
If people don't try to be virtuous and police their own behavior, then the state has to hire more police. The kind of government that we want, the freedoms that we want, it only works if the church is strong and vital. Number five, we must care for the poor and oppressed. Politics, by definition, is, is, the, is the science of trying to figure out how we're going to get along. How are we going to live together? People have different ideas. People have different values. People want to make different decisions. How do you hold it all together? Politics is trying to answer that question. How do we hold this together? Well, one of the challenges on whatever you are trying to hold together is that there are some people who aren't making it. Right? That, are, that are falling through the cracks, and, and they need to be cared for. And I want to remind you that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're especially to be mindful of the needs of the people that are broken, and we are to care for them. When we were in um, Israel, we, we went out into the Judean desert one day, and uh, our first stop was in the Qumran community where... Um, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So in 1947, a Bedouin shepherd boy trying to find a lost goat throws a rock into a cave and he hears something shatter. It's a vase that's shattering. He goes climbing up into this cave and he's hoping that he's going to find um, gold or you know, Aladdin's lamp or something. Uh, what he finds are all these vases filled with uh, parchments that are made out of uh, writings that have been written on uh, treated goat skin. He's quite disappointed, but he takes some of the goat skins and he goes to a cobbler to see whether or not the cobbler can make um, sandals for him. And very thankfully, the cobbler could not. And uh, these parchments eventually found their way into the hands of people who recognize them for what they are. And the Dead Sea Scrolls is, is, is recognized certainly as being the most significant archaeological find in the last hundred years, and some would say the last thousand. And what it did for us as followers of Christ is it gave us an Old Testament that was a thousand years older than the one we previously had. So in 1947, the oldest Old Testament manuscripts that we had were from 1000 A.D. After the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, we found the entire Old Testament, with the exception of the book of Esther, we found all of the Old Testament, uh, and it went down, went back to the time of Christ. It was 2,000 years old, and remarkably, there were no differences, right? It, the, the, the Old Testament had been preserved. So it's a significant find, and it's found out there because the Essenes had fled out into the desert. That was their response to Roman occupation. So remember, Old Testament ends, the Jews have just gotten their freedom from the Babylonians. They've been in exile, they finally return. Okay, they're going to enjoy that freedom for a while, then Alexander the Great's going to conquer the whole world, and they're going to be under the Greeks. And then when Alexander the Great dies, they're going to fall under the Syrians, and Antiochus Epiphanes is going to go into the temple and desecrate it by slaughtering a pig, and the Jews are going to revolt under Judas Maccabeus. This is what gets celebrated at Hanukkah when they won back their freedom and rededicated the temple. 
Okay, well, they'll have freedom for 100 years, and then here comes the Roman governor, Pompey, 63 B.C. He captures Judea, and the Jews will be in subjection to the Romans for hundreds of years. Well, <clears throat> there, is, there are different efforts made by the Jews to try and live faithful lives to God. So they splintered. Some, called the Sadducees, were, were the, the liberal elite, and they were willing to trade power. They were willing to get along with the Romans in exchange for power. The Pharisees were, were going to try and be as religiously strict as they could in the hopes that if any one of them could keep the law perfectly for, for one day that the Messiah would return and would help them overthrow Rome. The zealots weren't interested in waiting. They simply wanted to pick up their sword and go out and try and defeat the Romans. The Essenes fled into the desert. And they were trying to live in the desert to be pure. They wanted to be removed from all the corrupting influences that were around them. They wanted to live as ascetics out in the desert, praying, copying the scriptures, and trying to live lives that honored God. Well, as we were leaving, um, the, uh, the pulling out of the desert, as we were leaving, I asked uh, people, uh, which are you? Right? I mean, here's four different responses to how we try to live as Christians in a land that is not ostensibly Christian. Right? Are you a Sadducee? Are you a Pharisee? Are you a Zealot? Or are you an Essene? Now, it's a bit of a trick question in part because none of those answers ultimately work. The Essenes got it wrong in this sense. We can't just leave. <laughs> we can't just flee. <laughs> we, we are expected to be salt and light in this world. And we're expected to care for, for other people. We are expected to, to, to be looking out for those who are oppressed and broken. Finally, number six, the government is not God. The government is not God. What you want most, the government cannot deliver. Now, there are some politicians who will promise that it can, and I believe there are some politicians who mistakenly think that it can, but it can't. The government cannot ultimately give us what we want. This world is broken in a way, and we are broken in ways that politics can't fix. And we need to understand that this is the situation and not try to turn the government into God. Before he died, Charles Colson said, 95% of the things that people look to government to do, government is incapable of doing. 95% of the things that people want government to do, the government can't do. He said in part because it's downstream of culture, so you just can't fix things by passing a law, but also because the government is not God. Right? The government is limited. What we need most, what we want most, cannot be provided by any political party. Utopia is not going to arrive on Air Force One. We need to remind ourselves, as the writer of Hebrews has stated, here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for a city that is to come. Here, in this world today, 
before Christ returns, we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for that city that is to come. The new Jerusalem, right? the kingdom of God, when his rule and reign will, will be in place when things will ultimately work. We need to downsize our expectations of what a president or a governor or Congress can do. You could elect the absolute best people. You could pick your ticket. You could put, I don't know, Billy Graham as president. You could, whoever you think could make things right, I promise you, most things wouldn't change. Right? We just, we can't fix what ultimately needs to be fixed. We need instead to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Our hope doesn't rest with the president. It rests with the king. It rests with the Savior, the crucified and risen Christ. Politics matter. Please don't hear me suggest otherwise. We need good, thoughtful, competent people in all branches of government up and down the spectrum. We absolutely do. And as Christians, we need to be good citizens. We need to be voting for the common good. And we need, we, we need to be voting And we need to be serving. But we should not be confused. The world is broken in ways that politics can't fix. The government is not God. What we need most is found in Christ, who is neither a Democrat nor a Republican. This is not a Christian nation. Government is a good thing, the most patriotic thing, that we can do is see the church grow, share our faith. We must care for the poor and oppressed. The government is not God. What we need most is found in Christ, who offers hope and peace and life and joy and forgiveness and grace and purpose. We need to turn to Christ. As those who are going to help uh, distribute.